Well, we are in a series on the book of 1 John, and so if you have a Bible, take it and turn to 1 John. If you don't have a Bible or don't know where 1 John is, there are Bibles for you on the round tables, and there's a table of contents for you in the front of your Bible, uh, or if you have one of the Bibles on the round tables, the page numbers are there in your bulletin. Uh, we all start somewhere, it's okay, but it's toward the end of the Bible, but you'll want to take take the Bible and open it up there, because we're looking at a, a rather large section. But as we do that, let me pray for us. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we do pray that you would be with us and for us, that you would, that you would come to us in and through your word, that the good news of Jesus Christ might be your very power for salvation to all of us here. And that it might incite our faith, our hope, and our love. We pray these things for Christ's sake and for the life of the world. In his name, amen. Well, I've been gone for a couple weeks, at least out of the pulpit, and last week I was in Chicago, and it is nice to be back from the Windy City. They are having a very um, mild winter this winter. Uh, it's supposed to be one of the mildest winters on record. I heard the stat, believe it or not, it has snowed up until last week more in Hawaii than in Chicago this winter. Isn't that Unbelievable. Unbelievable, because there are mountains in Hawaii, and so it's dumped there. So they're having this mild winter, and that was, uh, uh, I was excited to go to Chicago, um, and it was mild until I got there. And then I showed up, and uh, I have never been so cold as 11 p.m. sitting outside of O'Hare International Airport uh, with the wind blowing in my face waiting for an Uber. Uh, I was, uh, my little Santa Barbara self, um, well, I'm delicate, and I couldn't really take it. It was very, it was very challenging. The next, uh, on Monday, we had a, an inch and a half of, of snow an hour, an hour while I was there, so, so much for the, the mild winter. I was, I was so happy on Wednesday when I got back. I've never been so happy to sit in L.A. traffic. I mean, just to sit there and thaw out was amazing. Uh, I just rolled down my window and bumper-to-bumper traffic, and people were honking at me because I wasn't going anywhere. I didn't care. I was thawing out. It was, it was really, really nice. I've never, I've never loved L.A. traffic so much. But, but despite these things, the, it really has been a good year for Chicago. Not only have they had this really mild winter, uh, their cubs, their beloved cubs, finally broke the curse and won the World Series. And it was great being there and talking to people about what it was like to be there when the Cubs were, won the World Series. Uh, I had a friend who grew up there. We had dinner one night, and, and he was saying that the city was just elated. It was electric. And he was showing me pictures of the, the victory parade. Um, but uh, he was also saying that there are some downsides to the Cubs becoming um, successful. Uh, one of those is that tickets that used to be $20 are now $200. And uh, not only that, if you just did decide that you were willing to pay that much, you might get into Wrigley Field and find out that you didn't have a seat 
The reason is because there has been a surge of counterfeit tickets that have gone out into uh, the, uh, for the Cubs games. So all these people, like over 100 people, were showing up in the game with their ticket, and somebody else was in their seat. Right? And the thing about the counterfeit tickets, and he was like, it's not worth it to me, because the thing about the counterfeit tickets is they look so close to the real thing that you, I mean, to the, to the naked eye, you can't really tell a difference. There are a couple ways in which you can see the difference between an authentic ticket and a fake one. And one is the Major League Baseball logo, you know, that, that logo, they have watermarks of the logo all throughout the, um, the authentic tickets. Whereas the, uh, behind the small print, the fine print of the forged tickets, at least last year, they didn't have the watermarks. The watermarks, in other words, were an indication that what you were dealing with was the real thing. It verified, validated those tickets. Well, we've been in a series on First John, and speaking of Chicago and snow, there's First John, right? The connection is so logical. Uh, but actually, it is kind of logical because, uh, you know, John, he writes this book is kind of like a snowball. Um, he builds and builds and builds these themes, and he keeps coming around to them and developing them over and over again uh, with more complexity. And he circles back around, and he circles back around, and they grow and grow and grow. And so really, in, in some ways, First John lends itself more to preaching, not verse by verse or passage by passage, but actually theme by theme. Because these themes keep weaving together and building and building and building. And so for these last weeks, I'm going to take them theme by theme, though we have gone passage by passage up to this point. And one of the themes, one of the, the great themes of the book of 1 John, the reason that he is writing is so that people can know that they know that they have an authentic relationship with God. He writes at the very end of the letter in chapter 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John is writing that we may know, that we may have assurance, that we have eternal life, that we have an authentic relationship with God, with Jesus who is eternal life. And so throughout this book, John gives us these various tests, tests, ways of authenticating whether or not the relationship that we have with God is valid, authentic, real. Now, it's important to say this, uh, almost as important as the text you just got. It's important to say this, that these tests are the fruit and not the root of a relationship with God. That these tests are the evidence and not the cause of relationship with God. That these tests, that the things that we're going to look at, that they are not the basis of a relationship with God, but they are the outworking of a relationship with God. I mean, think of it like this. So I have a couple relationships, just a few, and one of them is that I am married. And one of the ways that you know that, the thing that indicates that, is I have a wedding ring on. I also have a five-year-old. One of the things that indicates that is the stains on my couch and carpet. Uh, now, 
this wedding ring did not cause me to be married. It doesn't make me married any more than the stains on my couch and my carpet cause me to have a five-year-old. But they are indications of it, you see. And they're very important indications. Well, in the same way, John says that there are these tests that they indicate that we have a relationship with God, like the, like the watermarks on that Cubs ticket. It authenticated that it was a real ticket, but it didn't cause it to be a real ticket. And so, he, really, these tests revolve around two questions. The first question is, what do you believe about Jesus? In other words, doctrine. And the second question is, how do you live in light of Jesus? In other words, ethics. And we're going to deal with the first of those questions, the first test this week, doctrine. And we're going to look at the second one, ethics, next week. Now, of course, in dividing these up, there's a danger. And the danger is this. The danger is that you'll only come to one week. And that you'll think that it's okay as long as you have all your doctrine right, that it doesn't matter how you live. Because that's what a lot of Christians think. So come next week. Because you need both. They're both vital, but we're separating them for purposes of time this week. So doctrine. Now, of course, as soon as I, as soon as I say that, I realize that, that the idea of doctrine, of truth, um, it, it, it already, there's already an averse reaction that some of you have to that, even the concept. Uh, in today's evangelicalism, people say, you know, uh, it's thought that doctrine, it, it hinders a relationship with Jesus. It doesn't facilitate a relationship with Jesus. Uh, that that it, it's a, an obstruction, not a help. And, and so um, I had a friend growing up, and one time he, he asked his, his dad, uh, Dad, like, what kind of Christians are we? Are we Christians that believe in, like, Methodist beliefs? Are we Christians that believe in Presbyterian beliefs? Are we Christians that believe in, like, uh, Anglican beliefs? What kind of Christians are we? And he said, uh, son, we are simple Christians. We believe the simple news that Jesus died for sins. Okay. But what if I were to ask my friend's dad, who is Jesus? And in what respect did he die for sins? And Why? And what qualified Jesus to do so? And how does any individual have access to that death for sins? Well, as soon as he would start to answer those questions, we're into doctrine. See, doctrine is unavoidable. It's not only unavoidable, it's also essential. John tells us, and John writes in this letter, throughout this letter, that those who have an authentic relationship with God, they will believe certain things about Jesus. And I want to look at two this morning. And these are the two central ones in the letter. The first is that those who have an authentic relationship with God, and one of the ways you can tell if you have an authentic relationship with God, is that you believe certain things about Jesus. Namely, first, they believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Look in chapter 4, verse 15. John writes, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, whoever believes that Jesus is the Son of God, he has an authentic relationship with God. That is that deep relationship that is vital. That is that relationship of abiding. He abides in God and God in him. 
Now, what does it mean to believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, throughout the Bible, Son of God indicates that someone has a unique relationship with God. So, for instance, Adam was called the Son of God. Did you know that? Look at Luke's genealogy. Because out of all of creation, Adam had a unique relationship with God. And Israel, Israel was also called the Son of God. Because out of all the nations of the world, Israel had a unique relationship with God. And David and Solomon and their sons, they were called the Son of God. Look at Psalm 2 or 2 Samuel 7. Well, why? Because out of all the kings in the earth and all the kings in the world, they had a unique relationship with God. So to be and called the Son of God is to have a unique relationship with God. But one of the things that actually becomes clear in that is this, that Son of God does not, and this I know might shock you, does not in and of itself entail divinity. Did you know that? Adam was not divine. Israel was not divine. David and Solomon were not divine. Now, why do I say that? Well, I don't say it to shock you. I say it because you may hear it and may not know what to do with it. I was watching Stephen Colbert some years ago, and he had a a scholar on, a New Testament scholar named Bart Ehrman. And Bart Ehrman has written lots of popular books. He's the professor at the University of North Carolina of early Christianity. And at one point, Stephen Colbert, who is a a Christian, uh, a convinced Catholic, committed Catholic, uh, Stephen Colbert um, said to Bart Ehrman, Jesus is the Son of God. The Gospels call him the Son of God to say that he was divine. And and Bart Ehrman retorts very quickly, well, David was called the Son of God too, and so was Solomon. They're not divine. Son of God doesn't mean divine. Well, that's, that's late night TV. So that's why I'm saying it. Because the question is, is how do we respond to Bart Ehrman? Well, my response is, you're right. Son of God does not in and of itself entail divinity. And David and Solomon were both son of God. And actually, Christians are also called the sons of God. Son of God actually means that you have a unique relationship with God. But... When the gospel writers apply the title to Jesus, when John applies the title to Jesus, they are seeing that Jesus is the one who has a unique relationship with God in in what respect? In this respect, that he was the one who was with God in the beginning, who was God, who through whom all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made, 1 John John 1, 1 and 2. In other words, Jesus has a unique relationship with God because Jesus never came into being. Jesus actually is included in the divine identity. Jesus is God. And that's what gives him a unique relationship with God. You see, when the apostles encountered Jesus Christ, they realized that they were encountering, they were encountering that which was from the beginning, the eternal life which was with God and was made manifest to us. 1 John 1, 1 through 5. In other words, Jesus, he has been eternally son of God. 
He was never made son of God. He never became son of God. He was eternally God the Son, forever and always in this unique relationship with the Father as part of what Christians called the Trinity. And that means that there was never a time in which he wasn't son of God. There was never a time when he wasn't son of God because there was never a time in which he wasn't. He didn't come into being. He is God from God and light from light. That is who he eternally and essentially is. And, and so, yes, while son of God does not in and of itself include divinity, when the gospel writers apply it to Jesus, it most certainly does. Jesus is God. God come in the flesh to us. Now, why is that important? One of the reasons why it's most important for John is because it means that Jesus shows us who God is and what God is like. Unlike anything else is able to. The Christians have always said that if you, if you want to know who God is and you want to know what God is like, you look into the face of Jesus Christ because Jesus is God. And he is the full and final revelation of God to humanity. See, it's an important question today. And the important question, you'll hear it all the time, is this. What gives you the right? What gives you the right to assume your religious perspective on reality is greater than my religious perspective on reality? What gives you the right to say who God is and what gives you the right to, uh, to privilege that perspective over, say, a Buddhist? It's a really important question, actually. It's the question, what gives you the right to speak for God? Who gets to say who God is? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, it's kind of audacious. Who gets to say who God is? Do you know the answer to that? God does. And God has. In Jesus Christ. 1 John 1, 2, And the life appeared, and we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim it to you, the eternal life, which was with the Father, has appeared to us. Jesus reveals God. Do you realize what this means? It means that you can actually know something about God. Not everything, but something. The infinite God, the incomprehensible God has made himself comprehensible to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Have you ever had to order food for someone and you didn't know what they wanted? That's like, that's, that is a difficult experience. You're sitting there and someone's like, just order something for me. And you're like, well, what do they like? Do they like burritos? Do they like onions? Are they thinking heavy? Like, or do they want a salad? Should I put them in a coma through this meal? Or should I make them, like, hungry afterwards? What do I get this person? Have you ever had that experience? Well, that's an altogether different experience than when someone tells you what they want, right? They say, I would like this. Uh, very different. I was um, with a friend, and we were at the uh, public market, and uh, we were going to get ice cream at Rory's afterward. Everybody's had Rory's ice cream. Uh, I'm trying to make you hungry right now because that will keep you awake during this. So 
Um, we're going to get Rory's ice cream. If you've never been, uh, save up your money because you, you have to like break, you, you do have to take out, like you have to cash in your savings to go there. But when you go there, you can let the, you know, the window of your life open up and the light shine in. And when you're there at Rory's, uh, it's amazing. We were going and, and this, this friend, his wife said, I want the fresh mint. And he was like, okay, fresh mint. And then he goes up and we go up there and there are all these flavors and they have these new flavors. And one of the flavors is Captain Crunch and, um, or something like that. And he says, my wife loves Captain Crunch cereal. I'm going to get her Captain Crunch. Bad move, Right. No, what did she say? I want fresh mint. And so he brings the Captain Crunch ice cream back to his wife, and he's like, honey, look, I got you Captain Crunch. They had Captain Crunch. Don't you love Captain Crunch? And she was like, well, I, I kind of wanted fresh mint, like I just said to you. You know, there, there's, there's a sense in which if someone tells us that they reveal something about themselves and we know them, then that makes all the difference, doesn't it? made all the difference in that situation. And it makes all the difference with God, too. Because if God has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ, then we must listen and respond. It, it means that, that, that agnosticism is not, is not noble or somehow intellectually better. I mean, think about it. If, um, if you're the parent of a teenage child and you ask them to take the trash out back and then you overhear them talking, maybe you tell, tell your teenagers, there's plural, there's multiple of them, and then you overhear them talking in the next room because you weren't in the room when you said it, you told them, but you know they heard you. Because you hear them talking amongst themselves and they say, well, was that really dad? I mean, we don't see dad. And, you know, he did say take the trash out back. And really, our, our trash is technically on the side of the house. So I don't, I don't think we really should take the trash out. I'm, I'm going to keep an open mind about this. Maybe dad didn't say take the trash out. Maybe it wasn't even dad. At that point, how do you respond to that teenage child? Do you think the parents are sitting there saying, wow, how intellectually honest, how astute, how, how much integrity? Are, is that what they're going to say? Are they going to be stupefied by their rebellion? It's the latter. God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And he's done so clearly. And we must listen. And we must respond. And we must take the trash out back. But it, it not only means that we must listen, if God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ, then it means that we can actually know God. And that's an astounding thing. There's a French philosopher, a very important thinker named Luke Ferry. Luke Ferry is not a Christian. He's a secular humanist. In a book entitled A Brief History of Thought, he actually is going through some of the most revolutionary thoughts in the world. 
And he looks at John's gospel and he says that one of the most revolutionary thoughts in the world is that when you read John's gospel, what's clear is that the power behind the whole universe was not an impersonal cosmic principle. That's not what John is presenting, but a real person who could be known and loved. And I said, now that's a game changer if that is true. And that's absolutely right. That we can know God, and that's a game changer. You know, I think it's amazing how, um, how starstruck we get. Have you ever noticed this? I'm going to laugh about myself. A couple of times in Santa Barbara or elsewhere, I've actually seen, like, really important people, people I deem really important. And, um, and so one time I saw, like, Tommy Lee Jones, uh, and he was, he was next door, and he was checking out a menu at Trattoria Victoria, and, um, you know, I, I recommended a couple of things to him. And another time I was at uh, a, um, a very, very, like, uh, a very elite establishment down in L.A. I think it's called um, Panera Bread Co., and I saw, uh, I saw, um, uh, well, his name is like, he changes names a lot on Parks and Rec. It's like Gail or, no, not Gail, he's married to Dale. Terry or Gary or, you know what I'm talking about, right? And I saw him and I was like, oh, amazing, he's here. One time I saw Toby from The Office and I realized that he never gets into character because he never got out of character. That's just him. Um, and one of my favorites was I saw Ryan Adams, who's one of my favorite musicians ever, and it was in like a a Borders at, uh, in Cambridge, England, and Pam and I saw him, and we start talking to him, we're like, hey, we're looking forward to the show the other night, and he stops, he starts talking, he's asking Pam about her job, and he's like, oh, that must be really hard, he's like, what do you do, and I'm like, well, I, I study ancient Judaism and Christianity, he's like, oh, yeah, like, like, 4Q, whatever, and I'm like, yeah, I do study the Dead Sea Scrolls, how do you know that, and he's like, oh, I sit in on classes at NYU, I'm like, okay, cool, so, like, you know, I leave and I have these experiences where I'm like elated by getting next to, getting close to someone who's like important, that we think is important, right? We love being close to glory. We love being close to the stars. And you know that, that feeling that you get within you, it's kind of funny, right? They're just people, but it's kind of funny. But you get, we love being close to glory, but do we love being close to glory? Because a relationship with the infinite God is on offer. And how much do we take advantage of that? How much are we starstruck by that? God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ, and we can actually commune with him. The first thing that... The first test he gives, the first thing that those who know and have an intimate relationship with Jesus, I mean, with God and Jesus Christ know is that Jesus is the, he's the son of God. But the second thing they know is that Jesus is the savior of the world. In 4.14, John writes, and we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. John says that, that we know that Jesus is not only the Son of God, but that he's the Son of God came to save the world. He puts it like this in chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. That is, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, has, 
has been born of God, has a special, unique, authentic relationship with God, like a, a, a child to a parent. Uh, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, now to understand that, you have to understand what does he mean when he says the Christ. Well, Christ was not a last name for Jesus, okay? Jesus' last name was Bar-Joseph, son of Joseph. They didn't have last names by then. Uh, from Nazareth, that's how they distinguished. Christ was a title, Messiah. It was the title of the anointed one, the Jewish king who would come and was promised to, to come, that God would send this king who would make the world right and his kingdom would bring peace and flourishing, universal flourishing and happiness and wholeness. And in, in Jews, they were looking forward. All their hopes were pinned on this, that one day, someday, God was going to send the Christ. In other words, they were looking for salvation. And we all are. You might not use those terms, but you are. Just think about it. We all know that things are wrong with the world. Whether you're a Christian here or not, the world is not the way it's supposed to be. Consider some of the ways in which you think the world is not the way it's supposed to be. Now consider the things that you're looking for to fix that. Well, that's your Savior. See, everyone's story runs on sin and salvation. We just use different terms for it. What are you looking for to fix your deepest problems? Is it your spouse? Maybe getting a spouse or if you, that your spouse would just change, then life would be good. Is it, is it the economy and a change in the economy? Is it education? People just knew more. What is it? Is it political structures? Oh, Whatever it is, that's what you're looking for. And, and what, what John is saying is that those who have an authentic relationship with God, well, they pin all their hopes on Jesus. They look to him as the one who fixes the world's problems, that he is the Christ. He is the one who brings salvation. But how does he do so? Chapter 5, verse 6, John tells us, This is he who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and the blood. Now, this sounds very enigmatic and kind of weird. What does it mean, water and the blood? Well, blood is clearly a reference to Jesus' death. And water, I think, most likely is a reference to Jesus' baptism. Because in this context, John is going to talk about how the Spirit testifies both with water and the blood that, that, that Jesus is uh, who he said he was. And it was at his baptism that the voice came out of heaven and said, truly, this is my beloved son of whom I'm well pleased. And the spirit descended. And it was at the crucifixion that the Roman centurion said, surely, this, truly, this is the son of God. And that was when water and blood poured out of Jesus' side to fulfill the scriptures, which the spirit had spoken beforehand. And so what he's saying is it's through Jesus' ministry, inaugurated in baptism, but especially through his death, that he brings salvation. And that those who know Jesus, those, the faith that overcomes the world, the faith that is the victory, the faith that authenticates a valid relationship with God that says you know the living God is a faith which says, I know that Jesus through his life 
in his ministry, but especially his death, not by water only, but by water and blood, brings salvation to the world and to me. I was, um, I was reading the, the New York Times not too long ago, and someone was writing and said something which I hear all the time. They said, I deeply admire Jesus and his message, but I have a hard time believing all this talk about death and resurrection. Uh, I, I was having lunch with a friend here in town the other day, and he said something very similar. I was talking to my doctor, and he found out I was a pastor, and he said, Jesus, um, I, I, uh, I grew up a Christian, and I got to say, I left it, and I've left the Christian faith, and I've left the church, but I, 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 haven't, I haven't found anything that rivals Jesus as far as a life is concerned, as far as his teaching is concerned. Well, the problem, of course, though, with that is that Jesus' teaching points to his death. And that all the Gospels are raised to the cross. And without his death and resurrection, his teaching doesn't make sense. I mean, what kind of statement is it, the meek shall inherit the earth if there is no resurrection of the dead? When the meek die and are slaughtered. You see, you can't have one without the other. And it's not just Jesus' life and teaching, but especially his death, John is saying, that saves the world. I mean, it really gets down to this question. What is our problem? What is our fundamental problem? What is your problem? Because if you diagnose whatever, however you diagnose the problem, you're going you're gonna to have a different prescription for it. Uh, and what is our problem? Is our problem that we just don't know enough, that we're ignorant, that we need more education? Well, let me ask you this. Do you ever do things that you know are bad for you, but you do them anyway? Ever? No. Like eat certain foods or maybe have certain habits or, or interact in relationships in ways that you know are bad for you and you know are bad and they're going to, like, you know, retaliate or... Ever? Of course, me too. And that shows that my problem is actually not ignorance. Not fundamentally. My problem is enslavement to patterns and habits that are self-destructive and world-destructive. And what I need is not an improved self. I don't need to know more. I need a new self. I need death and resurrection. And that's what the gospel presents us with. Death and resurrection via the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So that the life that we might live, we may no longer live to ourselves, but to him who loved us and gave himself for us. And what convinces us that this is true? The Spirit does. John goes on in chapter 5, verses 7 through 9, for there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony that he bore that, uh, of God that he bore concerning his Son. God's own Spirit testifies that Jesus came to save the world through his life, and especially through his death. That he came by water and the blood, not by water only, but especially by the blood. And if you don't know that, then you don't really know God, John is saying. I was, uh, I was in Chicago, and um, 
And I was there with a bunch of uh, uh, specialists in um, ancient Judaism and Christianity. And we were talking one night, and there was this guy who was a specialist in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And as we were talking throughout the night, he just, whenever he referred to anything in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, he would quote it in Hebrew off the top of his head, like tons of stuff. And it didn't matter whether it's from Deuteronomy or Numbers, he would just start going. And, uh, and a couple of times I'd ask him to translate, what are you talking about? Because I don't know that verse in Hebrew off the top of my head. Um, and, uh, and at one point, he was talking, somebody asked him about certain theories about the history of Deuteronomy. And he looked and he just goes, well, anyone who says that doesn't know the text. They just simply don't know the text. And then he starts quoting some more Hebrew to back that up. And I sat there and I thought like, well, this is a guy who really knows the text, right? He knows the text in its original languages. Uh, and at that point, I thought, you know, John's kind of like that. We say, like, listen, anyone who would say that, that Jesus' death was not the central and necessary event for the salvation of the world, well, they just don't know God. They don't know God. Because God sent his son to be the savior of the world. They don't know God. They don't know his holiness. That he hates it. Because it destroys the world and his creatures. They don't know his justice, that he makes things right and he punishes sin. But more than all those things, they don't know his heart. For God so loved the world. God loved the world to the extent that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. This is the heart of God that sent his only begotten for you and for me. Do you know God? You can. Do you know that? How? The answer is that you look to Jesus. You run to him. You learn about him. He is the son of God who reveals the heart of God to you and to me. Amen.